My question today to you will be, who's pushing your buttons? Because most of you are using the wrong metrics. Most of you are overcharging and underdelivering. If you're just getting into consulting, great, because you don't have to go down that wrong path. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It's your boy, King Taco, AKA Rabbi Kenlives, AKA Noah Kagan. One of the year's most popular guests on the show has been Alan Weiss, who wrote one of my favorite books called Million Dollar Consulting. He's a no-nonsense guy who dislikes self-help books not as much fan of Tony Robbins and has amazing suggestions on growing a consulting business and businesses in general. He held a small live seminar and was nice enough to let us record and share one meaty hour of the event. If you ever wanted to just learn more about consulting and growing a business, you're going to really enjoy this episode. Here's three major things you'll take away. Number one, why high ticket consulting is more simplification, not about being more complex. Number two, the oxygen mask principle and why it matters. And number three, how the unified field theory will be the catalyst for your consulting success. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Uh, not long ago, I had to fly to LA from Boston. And uh, the way I did that was to come up here and catch a United flight that had come in from Munich. So it was an overwater 767. So first class had great seats. About 12 of us in first class, I was in the bulkhead in the window, and the only empty seat was next to me, and just before they closed the door, a young woman came in and sat down. Very soft-spoken. Off we go, it's a great flight, movies, writing, reading, you know. But an hour outside of LA, the pilot says, we're gonna hit some turbulence, I wanna get the cabin cleaned up early. And so I take this wonderful seat and I try to put it in the upright position, but my blanket is caught in the footrest. And I'm tugging and tugging and it won't let go, so I do what men do, I start to hit all the buttons indiscriminately, and the seat froze. Nothing would move. And I said, I have just broken a $400,000 seat for United Airlines. But then a guy across the aisle started laughing. I wasn't hitting my buttons. I was hitting this woman's buttons. <laughs> and she was going up and down and in and out. And I was just beating the hell out of her. My question today to you will be, who's pushing your buttons? Because most of you are using the wrong metrics. Most of you are overcharging and underdelivering. If you're just getting into consulting, great because you don't have to go down that wrong path. So I'm gonna be talking today about mindset. Getting Started in Consulting is my second most popular book, of course, my bestseller is Million Dollar Consulting. It's on the shelves for 30 years, it's in five editions. That's pretty serious stuff, you know, sort of Peter Drucker territory. So I'm glad that you're here to re-energize your own practice or to start a new one, that's wonderful. This is a great profession, but a lot of people who leave corporate America as refugees or corporate wherever you are and go into a private practice, have acquired a worse boss. And so we have to change that. And what you have to do is understand that you have to influence the people you're with to where you want them to go. When I was young, I was born and bred in New Jersey. I'm a New Yorker, I mean, listen to my accent, right? There was a place in Jersey called Palisades Amusement Park. There was even a rock song about it, Palisades Park. And I was poor, we couldn't afford to go very often, it was a quarter to get in, but you know, once maybe a summer or every other summer, we got to go to Palisades Park. And they had this ride, you know, I'm six, seven years old. They have a boat ride and the boats start over here and they end over there and the boats are in a channel. So you think you're steering, but you're not because the boat bounces off the wall. The steering wheel has nothing to do with it and the channel carries the boat. When you're in discussion with a buyer, you have to keep the buyer in that boat channel. You know where you're starting, you're sitting down at a meeting. Where you're ending is you wanna get a proposal to this buyer and you have to keep the boat in that channel. So what I wanna tell you is that everything we do is about language. You know, I did this electronic book, The Martial Arts of Language. Everything we do is about language, and everything we do is about expertise. 
I addressed the IMC last week in Dallas, which is the Institute of Management Consultants, and they bring me down pretty much to irritate them, you know? And I told them that they're not consultants. What you are are experts, and you have to act as experts, and you decide how your expertise is conveyed. Is it conveyed in coaching or consulting or training or speaking or writing? Doesn't matter. How is your expertise conveyed? But you decide that, not the client. You decide that, not the prospect. And so when a prospect says to you, you know, I believe in the 1% solution, right? You improve by 1% a day in 70 days, you're twice as good. And do the math. It works. And not enough people improve by 1% a day because they hear a new idea and they try to figure out how to shoot it down. Some people will hear a new idea and they say, how can I make this work for me? And that's how I've grown. And I suggest you think about this. The thing you want to do is understand that what we do is about mindset. This fourth edition of Getting Started in Consulting is almost totally different from the third. I write books from my head to the screen, and I don't take the last edition and say, how do I improve it? So this book is very different from the third edition. For those of you who read it, it's about mindset. It's about support systems, and it's about how you look at things. I used to think the problem with consultants was that they didn't charge enough, and therefore they needed help with fees and proposals and so forth. And I understood pretty quickly that that's not it. It's self-esteem. It's sitting down understanding that you're a peer of the buyer. You might be in the buyer's office. The buyer might have a big office, might have millions of dollars in budget, 1,000 people working for her or for him. But you're sitting there because your help is needed. And so the first sale is to yourself. And you have to understand that your expertise is important. And you have to be free and willing to convey it. So you need to be able to be comfortable. I call it having the courage of your talent. You need to know how good you are, and you need to be willing and able to convey this to others. Shameless promotion, if you will. But you can't just be in a herd. If you're going to be part of the herd, no one's ever going to listen to you. You have to take a sharp right, get out of the herd, and start saying things differently. I have a lawyer in my coaching program, and he tells me how he's the best lawyer in the world, and he helps me, he's got these results, and so forth and so on. I mean, he's right. He's done a great job. But he's bored being a lawyer. He, you know, how much can you charge by the hour? And I said to him, you're an expert problem solver. You have to make a sharp right, and you have to be a superb problem solver who happens to have a law degree, not a lawyer who happens to solve problems. That's the difference. And if you don't make yourself unique, no one else is going to make you unique. So the 1% I was talking about a few minutes ago is this. When a buyer says to you, I'd like you to do a two-day leadership retreat. I'd like you to coach this person for a week. What you have to say is, why? Because when you say why, you drive decisions up. You drive decisions to a more strategic basis. When you say how, you drive them down to an implementation basis. And you want to go up, not down. Now listen to me. If you go to the human resources department, you are going down. In a lot of more ways than I mean by that one sentence. HR stands for hardly relevant. So you want to ask a buyer, why are you considering this? Well, you know, we need better communications among our leadership team. Well, why is that? Well, there's a lot of duplication of effort, and we're spending more money than we have to with each client because we have silos. Oh, so you need the silos removed. Well, yeah. Well, two-day retreat doesn't do that. So that's what I mean by the courage of your talent. You're there. You can help people tremendously. And the first sales to yourself, when you get up in the morning, there are basically two ways you can think. One way is, oh, my God, another day. I got to pay the bills. I owe people things. I've got to apologize to somebody. How will I ever fit it? Too much is scheduled. It's a long, slow crawl through enemy territory. Or you get up and say, what a great day. I wonder what opportunities await me. I look at my dogs in the morning. They go out 6 o'clock in the backyard, and they're saying to each other, the yard's still here. Look at that. The yard's still here. Let's see who is here overnight. 
If there's a gate open, through the gate. They don't stop and do a risk analysis. <laughs> through the gate. And that's the attitude you have to have right from the outset. Because if you think you're trying to make money, if you think you're trying to sell, you'll think you're interrupting people all the time. Oh, I'm an irritant. I'm interrupting. She's going to think I want her time. But if you think you have value to give, why wouldn't you go after people to give them value? It's a public service. And the difference in your thinking between selling and providing value is huge. So your attitude has to be, I'm providing value. I can't wait to get at them. I can't wait to provide that value. Three things you need. The first thing you need is passion. You've got to be passionate about what you do. Otherwise, things get onerous. You need to have the skills required and skills you can develop. And you need to have market need. You need those three things. And market need can be existing need, like strategy and leadership and all the stuff that's evergreen. Or you can create need. Or you can anticipate need. So I'll tell you a little bit about my story because I don't expect you to do what I did, but I do expect you can pick up some learning points and save yourself some grief. So in 1985, I was fired. I had come up to Rhode Island to become president of a behavioral consulting firm. I was working with a training firm in Princeton. And with that training firm in Princeton, I had sort of traveled the world and learned the training business. So they asked me to be president of a consulting firm in Rhode Island. It was owned by W. Clement Stone, the multi-billionaire. Stone hires me to be president of this behavioral consulting firm, and we hated each other. I mean, it was not nice. We found that out rather quickly. Stone believed in positive mental attitude. He had $450 million in the bank. The science of causation is etiology. And I told him his etiology was reversed. He didn't have $450 million because he had a positive mental attitude. He had a positive mental attitude because he had $450 million. And if he wanted to give everybody a positive mental attitude, he just had to give everyone $450 million. Case closed. So he didn't like that. He met me in the Admirals Club at O'Hare Airport, American Airlines, and he fired me. So I called my wife, and uh, she said, well, what happened? I said, well, he fired me. She said, well, we pretty much expected that, didn't we? She said. <laughs> and she said, look, forget about the mortgage, except my wife said this in Jersey terms, so you can imagine what that was like. She said, forget about the mortgage. My wife and I are married 51 years. We're high school sweethearts. And she said, no, stop that. The longevity doesn't get you anything. Talent gets you anything. Well, it is a talent being married to her, so you may applaud, yes. <laughs> so anyway, she says, what do you want to do? I said, no more. I will ever fire me again. It's not going to happen. She said, fine. She said, but you better get serious. And I said, fine. And so what I did was I went out. I bought a $2,000 suit. Now, this is 85. I traveled first class in limos. And she said to me, we have no money. We can't afford this. I said, I am not going to show up in a buyer's office, perspired and rumbled and late, wondering if I'll be seen as an equal. This is a very small investment. One piece of business pays for it forever. And she said, okay. And one of the things you all need in your lives, and I'll talk about this later, is support. It doesn't have to come from a partner, but you need support. And I'll tell you about that. We figured out, as our money dwindled, if I could make around $65,000, we'd be good for the end of the year. You know, that's all we needed. And I had a proposal in front of Merck Pharmaceuticals in Rowway, New Jersey. And so I put on my one good suit, flew down, limo takes me to Merck. I had three options in my proposal. And Del McPherson was the buyer. I still remember this. You don't forget these things. And he says, Alan, sit down. And I'm trying to hide my perspiration, you know. And he says, this is a very good proposal. He said, we're going to take option three. Just like that. Option three was $68,000. So after I got sort of some saliva back in my mouth, I said, listen, Del, can I call my office for messages? He said, sure, go right outside. Now, at this time, you know, it's all cubicles. It's all, you know, landline phones. 
and there's no privacy. So I go into an empty cubicle and I call my wife. And I said, uh, yes, it's Alan, I'm checking for messages. She says, how to go, how to go? <clears throat> I said, oh, things are very good. She said, good, good, they accept it? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, you could say that. And she says, how much? I said, I think it was the year we graduated. And she says, grammar school, high school, college? <laughs> I said, Rutgers, Rutgers. She said, 68. I said, thank you for the messages. I hung up. <laughs> you know, I've been there. This isn't my daddy's money. I know what it's like to be out there. And I know what it's like to fail. If you're not failing, you're not trying. When I was at the training firm in Princeton, I had made all these contacts. And when I got fired, even though it was, you know, five years later, whatever it was, I started calling all of them. And a couple of people at Merck, not just one, said, you know, Alan, if you're out on your own, we always have the need for smart people. Why don't you come around and see us again? And I called everyone I knew. The greatest thing that consultants lose that they don't do in terms of getting business is the easiest, and that's calling for referrals. But you don't call for referrals because you're afraid. And you're afraid because you'll be rejected. And there's the ego thing and the esteem coming up again. When you make a sale, there are three aspects to a sale. There's the original check you get. There's expansion business, which is further business you get. I worked with Merck for 12 years. And then there's referral business. And you say, I would love to meet your counterpart in Europe. You keep talking about your supplier. Can you introduce me to the president of your supply company? And so forth and so on. When I coach people who are brand new to consulting, because I coach people no matter what stage of their career they're in, because for me, it's a laboratory. When I coach new people, I put them on a regimen of creating a list, and then you triage the list. These people are probably or definitely buyers or recommenders. These people I don't know, and these people are definitely not. And then we work on category one with a phone call, not an email. And they're astounded at how many appointments they can get. You need to get referrals. You need to weasel your way in. You need to find people who know people who know people. Now, I'm going to tell you why that is. That's not just my bias. If you look at the research over the last 10 years, it's unequivocal. Executives make questions on peer-level referral, peer-level reference. Not advertising, not the web. They make decisions because somebody they trust tells them, use this. And so if you think about it, if you need a lawyer or you need a dentist or you need a designer or an architect, you ask someone you trust for referral. You don't go look up some list on the internet and just pick somebody. And so you ask somebody you trust who's had good results. The same thing in our business. So what you have to do is you have to ask yourself these questions. And by the way, I had at my consulting invention two years ago, I had Jonah Berger as my guest speaker. He's University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. He wrote Contagion and Invisible Influence. And he's pointed out that only 4% of peer reference at all comes electronically. So consequently, what you need to think about is how you go after these people. And you should have a regimen every week of calling for referrals. If you're seeing current clients, those of your current clients, ask your buyer for referrals. Tuck your ego away. And the way you ask for referral is you say something like this. I would love to meet so-and-so, either by name or hierarchy. In other words, I'd like to meet Mary Jones, or I would love to meet the president of your bank. Would you introduce me, or may I use your name? See, I'm giving options there. And if you do that three times a week, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm not asking you to do this 100 times, you'll get responses, just as you give referrals to people who come to you, because we're doing a three-way favor here. So somebody says you can use my name, but you don't know the person who you want to go see. So you call the bank president, and you'll get a secretary or, or voicemail probably, and you'll say, uh, John Smith suggested that I call you. I've been working with him, and he thought that you and I would have a really fascinating conversation about the kind of work I do, and that I could also learn something from you. 
when can we put 20 minutes together? And I found that every company I've ever talked to in this competitive world needs performance improved. What you want to do is you want to grow from a position of strength. You don't want to try to grow when things are bad. This is the ideal time for you to grow. What if I gave you three techniques for growth when you're doing so well that never fail? What you do is you go back to them and you do this. Thank you, I've contacted so-and-so. And I thank you for that. It doesn't have to be successful. Just on my contact, I want to thank you. What can I do for you in return? Is there anything you need in addition to what I've been working with you on? And thirdly, do you mind if I come back to you periodically and ask you for more referrals like this? That's it. You don't have to give them anything. You don't give them money or anything. People like to do favors, especially if they trust you. Well, they're not going to slip out of your web here. You should be talking to everybody every couple of months, regardless, right? So no matter who it is, this question was important. You know, I knew people at Merck, so I called them. I knew people at Hewlett Packard, so I called them. And most of them said, you know, Alan, we're not doing just now, so I couldn't talk them out of it. But all I need is one in 10 to say yes. Throughout history, from the Tyrannosaurus Rex to a cheetah today on the Serengeti, throughout history, predators have a 10% success rate. And so they have to make 10 attempts before they can bring home lunch. I used to sit in the beach, you know, at the Caribbean islands I love to go to, and I'd watch the pelicans dive. And most of the time they came up empty. And I'm saying, God, that's a pretty big headache there, you know? Boom. One in 10 is what they need. And so all we need is one in 10. And when you get good at this, you do a lot better than one in 10. As you develop what you call capacity, you have to be careful that you're not so labor intensive. Real wealth is not money. Real wealth is discretionary time. Your ability to go where you want, when you want. See your kid's soccer game, take an impulsive vacation. So real wealth is discretionary time. I can always make another dollar. I can never make another minute. Nine o'clock's gone. So you have to consistently and constantly bring on new business and reduce your labor by moving more toward an advisory situation. You don't want to be hands-on. You don't want to be training. You don't want to be working on projects. You might do a couple, but you want to basically become an advisor. You also want to raise your fees. And so if you step back in your labor, you keep raising your fees, you can keep bringing business on. Because I have a forum, and as we're sitting here, there are people on my forum all over the world discussing fees and marketing and ethics and all this kind of stuff. I'm given value for this, even though I'm not there at this moment, obviously. But they talk about these kinds of things. But a woman said just yesterday or this morning, she said, I've got five proposals out. I got five proposals out. I'm really worried that they're all going to hit. So I went ballistic. I just went ballistic. I said, for the love of God, you know, I can help people who are afraid of failure. I can't help people who are afraid of success. <laughs> so I said, here's how you never worry about that. You'll handle it. You change the schedule. You raise it. You do this. You do that. So fortunately, I worked most of that agita with her. So I'm not doing it with you. You know, I'm over in Manchester or someplace in England doing a keynote for a big conference. I delivered my keynote, and I am sort of swept into this reception. I hate these things. I hate small talk. I despise small talk. Swept into the reception. I can't get out of it. And what do you know? A guy comes up to me and says, would you like some feedback on your session? I said, is there anything in what's left of the British Empire that can stop you? <laughs> he says to me, you know, when you walk back and forth like this, I can't focus on what you're doing. But when you stand like this, I can focus. He says, do you know what that's called? I said, yes, a learning disability. <laughs> I talked before about passion and skills and market need. If you have passion and skills but no market need, nobody cares. If you have market need and passion but no skills, then the competition will always get it. And if you have market need and skills but no passion, then it's a nine to five job. So you need all three components. Now, I want to give you something counterintuitive here, and I call this the, the Michelangelo factor. We were in uh, Firenze, I guess. 
you're prepared to see the David in the Academy, this incredible Michelangelo sculpture, but you're not quite. You, you turn a corner and there it is, I don't know, it's 25 feet high, the, the veins in the legs and everything, it's, it's an amazing piece of art. And it's carved out of one piece of marble that was discarded. So there's a story that might be apocryphal. In Italian, the phrase is ben trovato, and ben trovato means if it's not true, it should be. So there's this ben trovato story about Michelangelo, and they said to him, how did you carve this thing out of this discarded piece of marble? And supposedly he said, I carved away everything that didn't look like David. And the reason I'm telling you this that's counterintuitive is this. We tend to want to put things on. We tend to want to build. We tend to want to add. And I'm telling you, I get paid for simplification, not complexification. I cut things to their essence. I reduce them because that's what clients need today more than ever. You want to talk about volatility, you want to talk about disruption, the way out of it is not more volatility, more disruption. The way out of that is simplification. And if Michelangelo kept adding to things, you'd have this gargantuan, terrible gargoyle of a statue. But he carved away everything, and that's what you have to do. You have to carve away what you don't need. Stop worrying about the fact that you don't have the absolutely latest operating system on your computer. Nobody cares. And it doesn't matter to you either. People have 16 backups. So if the earth explodes, somehow you can do business on Neptune or something. Stop it. So you have to understand that you need these three factors. And I talked about skills which you can acquire, passion for your work, or you wouldn't be here, right? And market need, I said that it can currently exist, and we all know these needs that are evergreen, but you can create need, and you can anticipate need. Now, I said to this woman over here from uh, Canada, cold calls are no good. And I gotta tell you, the last time I made a purchase, it was a cold call, it was somewhere around 1988. And a woman called me and says, is this Alan Weiss? Okay, so far, so good. So I said, yes. And she says, do you own a Mercedes 450 SLC? I said, yes, could have been a recall. And then she says, the only other thing she said to me was, how would you like to own one of the very first car phones in New England? And I said, how soon can you get here? And I had a hardwired phone, a handset in my car, but I was on top of the world. I never knew I needed that. But she showed me very quickly that I did. And when you have a luxury, it's only a luxury through one use. And after that, it is a necessity. And you can't do without it. We're riding in the car. I'm talking to London. Hung up. Said to my wife, you know, there's a lot of static on that call. My wife says, Alan, you're sitting in your car talking to London. Shut up. You know? A lot of times my wife sounds like Louis C.K. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> so if you're in condition one and you have the right mindset and you have the skills, it's lonely. And I want to tell you something about this business. You don't need someone just to be there when you fail, when things go wrong, and they'll go wrong. You need somebody there to celebrate the victories. You need somebody to give you perspective. You know, my wife has sat in the audience in a bad speech. And when I walked off stage, we walked out, she said to me, nothing more you could have done. Dead group. In another speech where I thought things were going swimming really well, I walked off the stage and she said to me, what the hell were you thinking? This is valuable feedback a week later after I get over it. You cannot afford to be lonely. And so if you don't have a partner, a life partner, find people who can relate to you and who will be candid with you. These are typically not your lawyer or your accountant. These are good people in their fields, but they don't understand what we do, and they're archly conservative. They're highly analytic and archly conservative and skeptical. You need people who can relate to what you do. You need people who might be entrepreneurs who started their own business, but you need to be able to talk to people. And you need to be able to talk to people who will challenge you. I'm going to give you a little hint that I've observed in sort of human behavior, and it's this. 
when you ask for help, some people will say, let me tell you how I do it. But other people will say, let me tell you how I think you should do it. It's the latter that you need. I have found that to be the essence of coaching. I might be able to do something you can't do. You can't write books like I do. So telling you to write books like I do is kind of silly. But if I tell you to publish, and here's how you can publish, given your passions, given your condition, that's a lot more valuable. So number one is you're lonely if you're only there. Number two is if you have the right mindset and you have the support, but you don't develop the skills, then you're sort of hapless. In other words, you can't do it. You can't implement it. People, some, for some reason, think that when a client or a prospect calls, they have to drop everything they're doing. And so people will say to me, Alan, I was going to go to your thought leadership conference, but a client asked me to do something on one of those days and I can't come. I said, I was doing something in Dallas last week, and about two weeks before, a woman who was in the room, and this was a session on critical thinking skills, and she said, Alan, I wanted to come so badly, but my client asked me for that day. I said, why don't you tell your client you're busy? She said, what? I said, tell your client you're busy. Do you think your clients expect you to be at their beck and call? So she told the client she was busy, and she came to my session. She had never thought to do that. And so what you should all be doing for 2020 is mapping out the vacations you want to take, mapping out essential obligations you might have with your kids or school or social engagements or obligations, map them out, and work around them. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've lost exactly two keynote speeches in 30 years because the client couldn't change the date and I could not be there. But I don't burn vacation time. I don't burn development time. I don't burn time that's important to me. And you have to act the same way. There's a healthy selfishness that you need. And this is the oxygen mask principle. You know, what do they tell you on the airline all the time? Put your oxygen mask on first. But they're right. And so I've trademarked this. And you cannot help other people unless you're helping yourself. You know, my wife and I have been on two dozen boards. I'm the president of the Providence Ballet right now. Somebody congratulated me on that. I said, well, I'm not sure that's the right phrase for that, but fair enough. But I can't do that if I don't have the time. I can't do that if I have to be at searching for money. I can't contribute philanthropically unless I have enough money to do so. This is healthy selfishness. So put your own oxygen mask on first and develop the skills that you need. And if you're over here and you have the support you need and you have the skill set, but you have the right mindset, then it's sort of apathy. And that's what I mean. You know, I can make another dollar. I can't make another minute. You have to be passionate about what you do. So I opened up this morning talking to you about using the wrong metrics. You have to use metrics that are right for you. When I entered this business, and you know, I'm fired. There are 250,000 people calling themselves consultants. What are they going to do? I recognize just a couple of basics. What is, what are my strengths? All right, what am I really good at? I'm good at writing and speaking. That's what I'm good at since high school. So I wrote and I spoke, I wrote and I spoke, I wrote and I spoke. That's what I did. I didn't network because I hate networking. I'm basically antisocial, but I could write and I could speak. And then I noticed the metric was you charge by the time unit. People would charge. They had articles about how much to charge by an hour, how much you want to make over the year, back up and divide it. Well, are you crazy? And so I said, forget that. And so in the 90s, I pioneered value-based fees in consulting. And those decisions changed my life. I wasn't using other people's metrics. I was going to use my own metrics. And so you have to be careful about who you choose to follow. You have to be careful about the advice you get. Most of the advice you get is wrong. Only take advice from people who you ask for and who you respect. Unsolicited feedback is for the sender, it's not for you. I have never looked at a feedback form in my life, a smile sheet, I've never read one. I don't care. I don't care if you like me. I care that you respect me. Because I'm not here for you to like me. That's speaker-centered, that's ego-centered. I'm here to try to provoke you. 
and with your prospects, with your clients, you need to provoke people. Because there's a difference between affection and respect. You don't want to be somebody's buddy. You want to be the trusted advisor. And that's an issue of respect. And if you want respect, you have to push back. If you want respect, you have to be able to tell people they're wrong. And you have to be very careful to whom you listen. I was doing a session, pro bono no less, for 200 people in California. And the woman running it was draconian. And nobody left until I filled out a smile sheet. Nobody got out of the room. So she collects 200 smile sheets. She said, you want to read these? I said, no. So two weeks later, she calls me. She's gone through them all. She says, I'm calling to give you your scores. I said, okay, give me the scores to get out of my life. So it was one to 10, right? 10 was high. She says, you got 198 tens and two nines. I said, well, that must make you happy. She said, well, obviously, I'm calling you about the two nines. <laughs> you cannot make this up. I said, are you crazy? She said, well, they both had the same cause for not giving you a 10. They weren't crazy, she said, about your sarcastic New York humor. I said, lady, you have not yet heard my sarcastic New York humor. <laughs> See, this is no way to go through life, right? Your own metrics, your own standards, you do what you think is best. And then you learn from that. But if you listen to just anyone who gives you feedback, the Japanese have this great thing, pachinko machines. You're going to look like that. You're going to be in a pinball machine. You can't do that. Courage of your talent. I want to go back to mindset here. And in terms of mindset, I talked about optimism. You know, you get up and you say, I can help people. The second thing I want to talk about is how you talk to yourself. I had Marty Seligman as a guest at one of my sessions. And Marty is at the University of Pennsylvania also. And he wrote Learned Optimism, which is on positive self-talk. And positive psychology over the past five or six years has come into vogue, maybe longer than that. And some people debunk it. They say you shouldn't tell yourself you know, how good things are. Fair enough. But I think that positive self-talk is extraordinarily important. And I want to teach you just one technique that I have observed and created, and it's this. You want to isolate negatives and generalize positives, not the other way around. We tend to do the reverse. We tend to generalize negatives. So a kid makes an error on the field, and the parent tells the kid, you know, you're pretty clumsy out there, which is a generalization, instead of saying, nobody could have done that right, which isolates it. Kid gets a great mark in a history test. Parent says, yeah, you got lucky on that one, didn't you? See, it isolates the negative. Instead of saying, you know, you're becoming quite a scholar. You have to look at what you do and understand. You need, this way you need partners, by the way, support. You need to broaden your victories. You have to understand what makes you good and isolate the negatives. I didn't get this piece of business. Okay, on this day, at this time, with this buyer, I did not get the piece of business. Fair enough. I'm not a lousy marketer. That's an inappropriate generalization. And that's how you have to speak to yourself. My suggestion is that every morning and every evening, you take 60 seconds and you simply tell yourself in the evening, here's the good things that I did today. Could be personal and professional. And in the morning, you say to yourself, here are some good things I intend to do today. You don't rehash the negatives. You don't have all this introspection over things that failed. Positive, positive. You're still aware of what failed, but you've got to talk to that way. I say it in the form of a little prayer. I'm not asking you to be religious. But you need to remind yourself of what you do. And you need to understand that you're doing more good than you think you're doing. Because people are taking what you help them with and annualizing it. They're spreading it. They're using it consistently. It's not just an event. You know, if you do workshops, I try to impress upon people, a workshop's not an event. It's part of a process. It has to go on and on and on. So don't look at these singularities. So there's this optimism and then there's the mindset. And then there is what I call the opportunism sequence. And the opportunism sequence is this. There are really three forms of creating new things. The first is being opportunistic. So you see something and you say, I can work on that. I can improve that. This is a good way for me to get business. It's a trigger, if you will. So you might be in front of a group 
people come up to you later and say, I would love to pursue this with you on a business basis. And you say, oh, I have to speak in front of more groups. That's opportunism. Then there's conformist innovation. My first book in 1988 was on innovation. It's still for sale on Amazon. Conformist innovation is Uber. They took the taxi business and applied GPS and clean cars and bonded drivers and yada, yada. I'm not going into their business practices and their problems, but the concept of Uber is conformist innovation. It's an improvement on taxis. And then there's non-conformist innovation, and that's Amazon. Now, years ago, in the mid-1800s, a place called Sears Roebuck put local general stores out of business in the West because they put catalogs on trains. In the 1860s, trains were transcontinental after the Civil War. They put catalogs on trains, shipped them out to the West, people made orders, shipped them back East, and Sears shipped them their goods. Now, this took two months, right? And they thought that was exceptionally fast service. And there are still, in middle America, in the West, there are still some prefabricated houses bought 100 years ago from Sears. They sold houses and everything else. But Sears did not morph into Amazon, did it? Which would have been a natural. Sears is out of business, functionally. And Amazon rose from nowhere. And that's because Jeff Bezos is a nonconformist innovator. Lost money, lost money, lost money, until he turned this into a moneymaker. Sears got very conservative and was in all the wrong businesses. So my suggestion to you, if you want to stand out in the crowd, if you want to take a sharp right out of the herd, is you have to be nonconformist innovative. And I'll tell you what I mean by that, because I are an example of that. So I have a million-dollar consulting college. There's nothing else like it. I have a million-dollar consulting invention. Nothing else like it. I have growth access, where anybody can get access who, who enters for membership into all of my intellectual property for one fee forever, and so forth and so on. You won't find this anywhere else in this kind of world, whether it's a corporate client or individual clients. You have to create this nonconformist innovation to stand out in a crowd. And so you have to think about, what is it that I do that I can position as unique to my prospects so they have to come to me and no one else? And if you're in a field like coaching or leadership or strategy or so forth that are overwhelming, that's okay because competition does not drive business out. Competition opens markets. This is why Burger King builds its stores across the street from McDonald's. People go in there to buy burgers. So competition opens markets. But the question for you, is how do I stand out in that particular crowd? Now, Einstein never got to develop what he called his unified field theory, which was he wanted to take the theory of relativity and gravity and all this stuff and make it into one grand theory. He was never successful. Kind of smart, but never successful. So Stephen Hawking decided he'd do that. Now, Hawking wrote this book, A Brief History of Time, okay, which I actually read. A lot of people have it on their bookshelves, haven't read it. I actually read it. And I tell you right now, I do not understand it but I gave it every chance. Okay, that's how smart Hawking is. But Hawking was never able to do it. I have a unified field theory in consulting, and I was able to do that. Now, it's not as dramatic as a black hole, but it will get you out of the dark. First thing you need is a value proposition. And a value proposition is a statement about how you improve the buyer's condition. So after you walk away from a buyer, the buyer's condition should be improved, I hope. Shouldn't be the same, shouldn't be worse. So your value proposition is how I improve things. And it's always a business outcome. The words like understanding, clarifying, aligning are not value propositions. It's got to be a business outcome. It could be narrow. I reduce sales closing time and cost of acquisition. That would appeal to sales executives. That's fine. Mine was, when I was doing a lot of corporate work, I dramatically improved individual and organizational performance. Why this can be? That's because I didn't want to turn off any buyers. I am a process consultant. I can work in any industry. You didn't want to turn off any buyers. So it could be narrow, it could be raw, it doesn't matter, but it's an outcome where you improve the buyer's condition. So if you do that, 
Now you have to ask yourself this, who is my ideal buyer? So here's a standard bell curve, and I've made a third dimension here. And so over here you have people who are irrelevant and on the fence and human resources, but over here, these are your ideal buyers. Now you might do business with other buyers, but my ideal buyer in OD work was somebody with P&L responsibility in a large firm. Didn't have to be the CEO. There's all kinds of money in large firms. Sometimes a nonprofit would come to me and the executive director of the nonprofit would say, Alan, we can pay your fee and we'd love for you to help us with this. And I'd say, fine, American Institute of Architects, client for two years. American Press Institute, client for 20 years. I'd say, fine, but I didn't tell myself my ideal buyer now was a nonprofit executive. They came in a side door, fine. But my ideal buyer remained the same. The reason this is so important for you is that you, as I, have limited time and money and resources. And so where do we direct them? So when you say to me, well, everybody's my prospect. No, it isn't. You need an ideal buyer because that is the person to whom you direct your marketing activity. Only your ideal buyer. So your conversation, your speaking, your writing. In other words, I talked before about this referral, peer level referral. When you know who your ideal buyer is, you ask yourself this question. What do they read? And that's where you publish. What do they attend? And that's where you speak. Where do they hang out? And that's where you network. So that's why the ideal buyer is so important. Once you've identified your ideal buyer, so let's call this one and this two, you use marketing gravity to attract them. And marketing gravity means that you're in the public square, that your name becomes known, that your work becomes known, that your intellectual property becomes known. And I told you before, you've got to step out from the herd, right? You've got to be provocative. So when I was out there, fired, I said to myself, I can write and speak. So where are I going to write and speak? Well, if my ideal buyer are these corporate executives, how can I best be heard? How will I be most provocative? Well, the big thing back then was quality. Black belts in quality. Lean. Kaizen. I don't know. Quality everything. So I proposed an article to a, a magazine here in Boston, Why Quality Doesn't Work and the Myth of Quality Control Circles. And he published it. And I want you to go back to the 30s to the Frankenstein movies because the villagers came up the hill with pitchforks and torches and they wanted to burn the place down. And I felt so horrible that I called the publisher and I apologized for causing this. And he says to me, kid, he says, I want you to do a monthly column, I'll pay you 50 bucks. I said, they hated the article. He said to me, they read the article, pivot point. And so I took on everything I could for the six years before that magazine was sold, 72 columns, they're still on my computer somewhere. Leadership doesn't start at the top or the bottom, starts in the middle. You don't need commitment, you need compliance. I just disagree with everything, and I got attention. And what I wanted was attention. That's what I mean by being in the public square. I'm coaching a woman, she's an expert on leadership, but she wants to talk about presence. And she said, but I'm known for leadership. I said, look, accept the assignment, walk up to the microphone, and say, I'm happy to be here talking about leadership, and then talk about presence. You need to get in the door. And so, that's marketing gravity. 50% of your time or better, had better be spent on market gravity. So this is my accelerant curve, which I created a few years ago. And on the left-hand side of this accelerant curve, people can have ease of entry to find you and interact with you. So this is ease of entry here. I mean, normally it's about 15 or $20,000 to sit in one of these seats and I'd have 15 people here and be very happy. And you'll benefit, but so will I. And so on the left is ease of entry, free newsletters inexpensive teleconferences, free podcasts, 
get to know you. And as you move from left to right, as people come down this accelerant curve, now you're starting to charge for consulting and coaching and whatever it is you do. And this speed here is going to be based on the power of your brand and on trust, which accelerates people down the curve. So they get to know you. They like what you say. I mean, a lot of you read Monday Morning Memo and Balancing Act and things I put out that are free, and you like it, and you gain from it. That's why you keep reading it, I guess. It drives people down the curve. And here, I call these bounce factors because there are things that propel people forward. So million-dollar consulting, you could probably buy for 16 bucks, I guess. But some people buy it and go into this vault here and attend the consulting college with your $16,000. And that's the bounce that they take. So what you have to do as you're attracting people here in Market Gravity is deciding where they go on the accelerant curve. So they might just enter here. They might enter in the middle. They can enter anywhere. Or they might enter on the right. So on the right are high-priced, low-labor things. And in the vault here, these are very high-priced, very low-labor things. That's what I was alluding to earlier about coaching remotely, about advisory work. So please don't equate higher fees with more labor. That's not the way this works. And you build your vault items. You build things here, build things you build your vault items. And that's what I focused on doing. When you do this, when you get down here, fee is not an issue. You know, a lot of firms that were in bad shape increased the fees of their products, did nothing else but increase the fees of their products, and suddenly had a dramatic surge in business. Listen to me, okay? One of the 1% points for some of you. People believe they get what they pay for. Consequently, if something is too inexpensive, they are not going to buy it because they have suspicions. I got a Bentley outside here. It's only 1500 bucks. You know, where'd you steal it? People believe they, get, they pay for it. So this is value, and this is fee, and fee follows value, but the lines cross. And where the lines cross, value follows fee. That is, people believe they're getting what they pay for. And that's what happens when you have a strong brand. I'll talk about branding a little later on. But that's what happens when your brand is really strong. When you're successful in building this, you get what I call parachute business. And that means some people enter on the extreme right to begin with, and they don't have to work their way down. So unified field theory, here's what I'm talking about. If you want to just put things in grand order, you start with a value proposition, which may change as you grow and as you learn, as your market changes. But you have to have a value proposition, which determines who your ideal buyer is, which determines the kind of gravity you need to attract them and where you place it, which draws them to your accelerant curve. And that's how that sequence works. So I'm trying to create uh, order out of chaos here. And remember, the passion is never in chasing money. The passion is in helping people. So this is called conversion. You got everything you need. You got support. You got the skills. You got passion. And there are ideal buyers out there. So what's the secret to when you're in front of them, making it natural to work together? If you take a look at the grand scheme of things, there's attraction, which is what I've been talking about, getting people to come to you. And then there is exploration, which is trying to find out how you can work together. Then there's conversion, which is converting it to a sale where you're getting paid. And then there's implementation and exploitation. And implementation means you're implementing the project, but exploitation means you're going after those other two sales I talked about earlier, right? Referral business, expansion business, okay. So how do you make this comfortable when you're in front of the buyer? The way there are three reasons, there are three things to do. Number one is you act as a peer of the buyer and not somebody trying to sell anything. And so this means you have to be learned. You have to be able to discuss the issues of the day, not just with the buyer, but what does Brexit mean to the buyer? Or what does it mean to the buyer that Australia 
has been on a growth track since the 90s. Since the 90s without a recession. And so people say, well, we're going to have a correction. The sky's going to fall. Well, for 10 years in the US, we've been fine. And since the 90s in Australia, they've been fine. So maybe there's not going to be a correction. So are you hunkering down in your business or should you be more aggressive? That's the kind of conversation. The third thing is, you have to say things like this. I can help you. You don't often say that. So you know, it's been fascinating listening to you. I can help you. Really, how would you do that? Well, let me ask you a few questions. You say things like, let me tell you what my most successful clients have done with me. Well, you certainly want to hear the next sentence, don't you? And so instead of saying, well, you pay me money, you give me a check, you say, I can help you. Let me ask you some questions. Let me tell you what other people have done with me. And you get into a partner-like conversation because we're partnering with these people. Here's a rough estimate for you. If you have an hour meeting, the first 10 to 15 minutes should be establishing a relationship, chatting, peer-level relationship. I've been looking at your business. Your number three competitor went bankrupt. What does that mean for you? The next 10 to 15 minutes are looking for issues that might be appropriate to work together. Brief digression. Somebody says, we're doing great. We're doing great. We have no problems. Everything is fine. I can't imagine where we need help. Now, I love this stuff. See, I picture all this as a game. It's never threatening to me. It's a chess match. I love this stuff. Sometimes I have to stop myself from saying, game match set, you know. <laughs> so I say, in that instance, listen, if the board gave you a million dollars and told you to put it wherever you like, where would you put it? Would you return it? Would you tell the board we don't need it? Things are too good? Well, no, I'd put it into expanding the property. Well, okay, why? See, and that's how you get through this stuff. So that's the second 10 to 15 minutes. Third 10 to 15 minutes is what I call conceptual agreement. Objectives, measures, value. It's in the book. Objectives, measures, value. And that's the heart of the proposal. And then the final 10 to 15 minutes is pouring concrete. Is there anything we have not discussed that could possibly get in the way of you going ahead when I call you in two days after I send you the proposal? If it's a small business and the small business owner has a spouse or life partner, you want to meet that person. Don't let anyone tell you, oh, they're not in the business. They're always in the business some way. You want to meet that person. Well, why do you want to meet my partner? Well, because he or she will ask you questions you can't answer, but I can. Not so much in a corporation, right? But you pour concrete. Now, I just described 45 minutes to 60 minutes. And if you're disciplined, that's what it takes. And that's what you're doing in here. If you do things that are not normally done, the prospect is going to be interested. You have set the playing field to your advantage. And so you don't want to conform to things. So now we're in the conversion part of that process, the sort of third to fourth part of that process. And I say to you, well, fine, look, if I get this proposal to you tomorrow, are you here Tuesday at 10 o'clock? Do you want me to call your office phone or your cell phone? And let's discuss then which option, watch my language, which option you want to proceed with. And you say to me, well, Alan, you haven't quoted any fees. I don't know what this costs. And I say, if I show you a dramatic 10 to 1 return on your investment, is that something worth doing for you? It always is. He says, well, in that case, I said, fine, take your time, take a look, I'll call you Tuesday at 10. Some of you will complain, well, the buyer's gone dark. You know, the buyer doesn't call me back. If a buyer doesn't call you back, and this happens more than two or three times, it's you, not the buyer. Whenever anything happens repeatedly, it's you. You have the commonality. And it's because you need time, date, and action for everything. Time, date, action. Let's have another meeting. Fine. How about Monday at 3, and we'll talk about the next step in the process. Time, date, action. Another reason buyers go dark is that you leave too early. They've flushed you out. Oh, God, I can't stand this. Oh, I tell you, send me a proposal. And out you go, and you never hear from the buyer again. I'm going to give you the absolutely best way to get business. And the absolute best way to get business is evangelism. And what you do is you get existing clients, people who love you, together with people 
who don't know you, but are ideal buyers. And you let them do the work for you. And so I'll run something for my community, right? And somebody will say, well, have you been to Alan's you know, consulting invention? Say, no, no, but I was at a seminar on this. No, no, seminar, that's fine, but you really need to go to this. You need to get people together who sell to each other. The first great viral marketer was St. Paul, by the way. He'd go to some place, he'd tell the Romans, you know, go tell 10 other people. Then they tell 10 other people. This is viral marketing, do it without a computer. Another thing you have to think about is this. For those of you who have businesses already, the best way to really grow your business this way is not to bring your best clients to strangers. Bring your best clients to your second best clients. Because these people already love you and they're already spending money. So to bring them up to this is a small distance, but it's very important for your income. So always look to bring all of your better clients up to the level of best client. This might be an executive recruiter who says, look, I can give you referrals, but I expect you to give me companies looking for help so I can do it. Give them the referral first. Stir the pot, you know, prime the pump, and show them that you're in this. Be generous, but just don't get into a money exchange. It's a favor for favor. I mean, if you were to give somebody one lead a month, but I mean a good lead, a good referral, that's very generous. You have to show the danger of apathy. You have to show the danger of non-movement, right? Because non-action is a kind of action. And so you have to show the cost of doing nothing. So somebody says to me in my coaching program, he's got a retainer relationship. Client says, I didn't call you too much last year. Now, retainer is not based on how many times you call, right? So I didn't call you too much. You know, if we do it next year, I want a greatly reduced fee, or maybe we shouldn't do it. So my client says to me, what should I do? I said to him, did your client have any fires last year? And he said, what? I said, did your client have any fires? He said, no. So I said, no fires. He said, none. I said, did he cancel his fire insurance? Those are the kind of metaphors you have to use. So if you're talking about insurance, for example, you have to show people the impact of what happens if they don't have the proper insurance. Because the impact of what happens for not having the proper insurance is far more emotional than the need to buy insurance. I used to work on a suicide hotline when I was getting my PhD. I had to convince people of the damage they'd leave behind taking care of this temporary problem they had, if I possibly could. And people with children almost always were responsive to that discussion, at least. And so you have to convince people of the dangers of not doing anything and of the great emotional state of what would be missing here. My new book is Fearless Leadership. It comes out in December. The book that I also did with Getting Started was called Three Score and More. And it was about aging, because I find that age bias is still very much practiced in this country. We address race and we address ethnicity, but it's okay to be biased against people who are overweight or who are old, which just frosts me. You know, I'm 73, I'm on top of my game, get the hell out of my way. And when I wrote this book, I discovered that there's the greatest transfer of wealth in history occurring right now because of the Reagan era IRA legislation. So tens of trillions of dollars, I'm the senior boomer, coming through my generation to our kids and so on. But when it comes to me, because I have to take the money out, the government forces you to, I don't need to buy still another car or a bigger house. I don't have education expenses and so forth. My big concern is to continue to live my lifestyle the way I like it and to make sure my kids never have to take care of me. Because when my kids try to come to put me in a home, they're going to find four German shepherds and it's going to be... <laughs> but I'm not here to make my kids wealthy. I'm not sure giving my kids millions of dollars is a good idea in any case. But this vast transfer that's happening is interesting because I am not dealing with 38-year-old financial planners. I'm dealing with financial planners who are contemporaries of me because they understand who I am. In Japan right now, the investment firms are rehiring retirees in their 80s and 90s. Japanese have one of the longest lifespans in the world because you have these elderly, wealthy Japanese who don't want to deal with a 40-year-old either. So they want to deal with contemporaries. And so my message to you about this is there are a lot of ways. It doesn't matter how young you are. 
As long as you have value, there are ways you can be a contemporary to your buyer through your speech. You have to identify your buyer's issues and talk like that. So people say, well, you know, I'm this, I'm that, I'm young. Doesn't matter. People buy value. You know, maybe 5% of buyers are bigoted, but most of them aren't one way or another. So you have to provide value and you can identify with them and create this peer relationship by speaking their language. And that's what you need to do. Okay, so the fourth sales person is a metaphor. And what I mean is this. Not only do you want to make a sale to this company, but you want to think about working with this company for five or six or eight years. I don't know what it will look like, but this is a relationship business. So I want to foster a relationship here where I develop such trust that this sale will simply be the start of something that goes on and on and on. It might be in other areas completely. So I'm not just thinking about getting this check for this piece of work and then going home. I'm thinking about how can I get her to want to use me on a repetitive basis. So how do you get to a CFO in a large international company? Well, you don't do it cold calling. So the first thing you do is put yourself in that person's shoes. So I am that CFO. So you put yourself in those shoes. The thing about putting yourself in the other person's shoes is that you can insult them. And when they wake up in the morning, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. So look, as long as I'm having a good time, that's all that matters. <laughs> Ask yourself, what would that person respond to? That person would probably respond to something from a trade association to which he or she belongs. The person would respond to something from, I don't know, a mastermind group or a small group of colleagues or intimates whom they respect. That person would respond to IP they saw in relevant literature. So if there is a, I don't know, Financial Times, a CFO journal, a Sloan Management Review, I don't know, whatever there is in Switzerland, but they would respond to a learned article in there. They would respond to someone speaking at a meeting they went to on behalf of their company or on behalf of their specialty, their profession. And they would respond to something they saw somebody else using who raved about it. So I call those radar screens. And you have to decide, how do I get on those radar screens? And that's what you have to pursue. It's easier to pursue an editor to get an article placed somewhere than it is to pursue a busy executive to get into that executive's office. So you have to start someplace. But once you get up there at all, now you've got this peer level thing working that I talked about. That's hyperspeed. That works really fine. You know, I walked off the stage when speaking about strategy. A woman says to me, what do you think about this approach? I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Where'd you get it? She said, it was from your book. <laughs> I said, well, we all grow. Here's the deal. So you can't personalize things. You can't take rejection personally. It's not about you. If everybody were afraid of being rejected, nothing would ever happen in society. I mean, there are people whose father told them, you'll never amount to anything, and they still believe it today. I can't help with that. That has to be rooted out by a specialist, right? But I want you to look at it this way. So esteem is how you feel about yourself, and efficacy is how well you do things. So here's the relationship. If you have low esteem, you don't feel good about yourself, and you're not good at what you do, this is alienation. I think the French word is anomie. There's something called anomic suicide. So this is alienation. If you have low esteem and high efficacy, okay, you feel like an imposter. So you look at anybody, you look at an actor who's won the Academy Award, and they have pictures of them after the ceremony, and every one of those people is wondering, will I ever work again? And the reason is they've been awarded for playing someone who is not them. Actors are notoriously insecure. So this is the imposter. So if you have low efficacy but very high esteem, in Texas they call this um, big hat, no cattle. This is the person who talks a good game but there's nothing there. You know, it's like the motivational speaker. What you have to understand in terms of esteem is that you are not as good as your last victory or as bad as your last defeat. So what you have to identify or have people help you identify is why you're good and the good that you do and what it contributes. Because high esteem is really about self-worth. And it means probably, probably, 
that you don't feel well enough equipped to help the people with whom you're dealing. And if they do hire you, it's a mistake they made because they haven't uncovered the fact that you're not. But the fact is, these are smart people and they're using their best judgment and they're smart to hire you. So let me deal with the larger picture. You and I are in the marketing business. It's not the consulting business, not even the expertise business I talked about earlier. We're in the marketing business. And that's why I laid out that uniform field theory. You have to market. There are a lot of people who are superb at consulting and lousy at marketing who are starving. There are a lot of people who are mediocre at consulting but really good at marketing who are doing well. And then there are people who are really excellent at consulting and excellent at marketing who do spectacularly well. If you do not blow your own horn, there is no music. And so, don't rely on others. You've got to be out there. You've got to tell people, this is my idea. This is my IP. This is how I do it. These are my clients. These are my referrals. Because this is the marketing business. That's why I view life as a game. Because, you know, nothing I do is going to change Western civilization tomorrow. But I do help people a little bit. I recognize that. I help people a little. And that's good enough. Before we jump into the conversation, go check out Alan Weiss at alanweiss.com. That's A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. And also a special pre-show shout out to listener UCSDSU of USA. There's a lot of letters. He left a review saying, seriously, a few of the guests Noah is out on the podcast have been game changers in my life. Alan Weiss, who you're hearing today, and Michael Lombardi. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you saying that. If you want a shout out in a future episode, leave an iTunes review. I check every single one. Go steal your friend's iPhone. Come on. That's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode. If you did, go check out Alan at alanweiss.com. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog. Let's grab some matcha green tea together. Before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by emailing podcast at okdork.com. I check out gifts in every email. Also, remember to go check out Alan's newsletter at alanweiss.com. Final special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com. Don't hire him because I need his help working on this podcast for you. And thanks to Sean, David, and Dean at the Dork team, plus a new guy, Mitchell. What up, man? And a special shout out to Dr. Og at Sumo this week. Just let, wanted to let you know you're the man. What's your favorite fiction book? <laughs>